Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of Desert Island Dishes with me, Margie Broadhead. My guest this week is the wonderful Frances Quinn, winner of the Great British Bake Off Series 4. Now, like most people in the UK and probably the world, I'm fairly obsessed with the Great British Bake Off and it's back on telly next week. So to meet a winner was just a dream come true. Frances is ridiculously talented. She sees food in a way that just most people don't, and yet it just comes so naturally to her. Have a look at her Instagram if you haven't already, because it will boggle your mind in a good way. She makes the most incredible cakes that all look almost too good to eat. Almost. So it was generally just lovely to meet Fran and have a chat about all things Bake Off. I wanted all the goss, as well as all the amazing things she's been up to since the show. We recorded this sitting in my car. Oh, the glamour. And you see some pretty strange things sitting in a parked car for 40 minutes, let me tell you. Anyway, here is Frances. I am very honoured to be here today with Frances, who is not only a great British Bake Off winner, but also the holder of two world records. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Frances. So, Frances, take us back to before the Bake Off. What were you up to? So I was a designer before going on the Bake Off, although it's funny, I shouldn't say I was because I sort of still see I am, but I'm just, rather than designing with fabric, I'm designing with food. So, yeah, I was a baby toddler designer for Jules. And it was the people at Jules that sort of encouraged me to apply for the show. (gasps) I was going to say, what made you want to apply? Was it just you loved baking and everyone would just did. I did love baking, but it really took on a more creative angle when I joined Jules because they were wanting someone to be putting recipes on the blog. So they were like, oh, Fran, you often talk about baking. Why don't you, you know, do some recipes? So I started doing that. And then I just started doing bakes for people's birthdays or selection meetings. So say if we were designing a spring summer collection, that's when I did like the edible biscuit beach. And it was for a lot of the bakes I did on Bake Off started life at Jules. So the giant jam sandwich cake that was done for my friend Hannah and the secret squirrel cake was done for my friend and colleague Susie because her nickname was squirrel and she was pregnant. So everyone was calling the bump the secret squirrel. So the day before she left work for maternity leave, I created the cake. And I remember thinking, because Susie was always, she always used to eat loads of nuts and stuff, obviously, yeah. pre-pregnancy. So I sort of wanted it to be like a tree with nuts. Um, I didn't completely know what I was going to be, if it was going to work. But I remember the night before making it, I was like, well, I really want to fit a squirrel in the cake, but it might end up looking like the Turin Shroud. Oh. <laughs> so, and so anyway, I fitted it in. And then I remember walking up the stairs at work and I was like, it's a tree cake, it's a tree. And I was like, well, there should be something hidden inside. And then I remember Susie cut through it and it did, it thankfully, look like a squirrel. Oh, and then, Goodness. Yeah, and then for weeks after, everyone was like, how did you get a squirrel inside People a cake? must have been blown away. I mean, like gobsmacked. So they were the ones that were like, Fran, you need to go on the show. So they were lining up application forms for my desk. and <gasps> So I applied quite late, but yeah, it's all down to them. What, and so how do you actually apply? What does it consist it of? It is a long process. Oh, it's it? almost as long as the filming for the oh, show. Oh, really? Well, just because of the sheer number of applicants. Yeah, and I think all the different stages. So once you apply, the form itself is really long. It's about four or five pages long. And then... And what I do remember, they want to know? So they want to know, like, how confident you are with, like... Because obviously it's not just cake, it's cake, biscuits, bread, pastry. 
how you feel about them all. I think they're trying to work out that you haven't got a little patisserie shop down the road okay, and yeah. you are actually an amateur. <laughs> Never um, done this before, Exactly. Um, shoe pastry, what? <laughs> and then I remember the first time I got a call on my mobile, obviously it was like an unknown number. And I was like, hello. And they were like, this is the Great British Bake Off. And I was like, Ooh. And I remember I got it at work, so I like scuttled down into like the corridor. And I then remember taking all my phone interviews in the disabled toilets oh. at work. Because <laughs> it was the only place that you had privacy. I'd be in there for about 10 or 15 minutes. Oh my God. I remember like colleagues were like, Are you right, okay? Fran? So I had about three phone interviews before then I got the phone interview saying, You've made it through to like the auditions in London. And I remember it was the night of the Christmas party. So I had a real reason to celebrate. Oh my goodness. And then, yeah, then I had to come down to London and you had to take a sweet and savoury bake. What did you take? Well, you have to think of something that's going to travel well. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah no, like that's the, definitely that is to the think technical about. challenge. Yeah. So I did <laughs> the first, uh, the first one <laughs> without a red gingham tablecloth anywhere in sight. So I, one of the cakes that everyone loved at work was like my apple crumble and custard cake. Um, so it was like an apple cake and then it had custard running through it and then a crumble top and it was quite good to travel with because it was sort of flat yeah and then I sort of pushed the boat out a little bit more for the savoury so I did a twist on the scotch egg so it was like using chicken mince rather than pork to play on the whole thing what came first the chicken Uh, or the egg oh I love crazy I'm bad for a pun (laughs) bad for a pun and then it was it had like a pastry shell rather than like a sort of um Breadcrumb. Breadcrumb. And then it was sat on a nest of cheese straws. Oh, um, my goodness. So I had, I had to as- assemble it in there. And honestly, the, first, the place where we had the audition, it was almost like what I described like as a baker's waiting room. So obviously all the other bakers were in there and we were just sitting there and we were assemb- putting our bakes up. But most people were like, just sat their cake on. I was yeah. like, hang on, <laughs> I've just got to assemble the edible nest. <laughs> and I think that was other, when they were like, oh, what have we got? Other hands? people must have been eyeing you up like, oh my goodness, why have I bought a Victoria's bun? <laughs> no, there were some amazing <laughs> creations, absolutely amazing. So you had that, you then had to meet the producers, had a bit of a screen test to make sure you didn't sort of clam up in front of the camera. And I had what I sort of was like my baking portfolio because I was a designer. I had like a design one and I used to take loads of photos of the bakes when I used to take them into work. It was always a running joke, actually, that I used to take a bake in and I'd be like, hang on, guys, let me just take a photo of it. And there was an amazing like design room that just had a nice big white table. So I was able to take a photo. So that all sort of just got produced into a portfolio. So I remember one of the producers were like, We've never had a baking portfolio before. <laughs> and also, I'd done a cake for one of my um, colleagues at work. She wanted a cake for her fa- family friend called the Pigeons. So oh, my god! They love pigeons. So yeah. I did a pigeon cake with edible pigeon poo oh. on the side, <laughs> as you do. What was the poo made of? It was just like water icing. <laughs> but I printed out a sheet of like paving slab, so it looked a bit more. Oh my goodness. So but you were able to show them that and they were just like, that. you are in. And the producer, an unusual bird to like, but she was a big fan of pigeons. So it was <laughs> really? quite, she was like, really? I'm always going to remember you. <laughs> I have so. so many questions, but let's take a pause there and talk about your first Desert Island dish of the day. And that is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Ah, oh, you see, I'm from, a, I'm, a, I'm the youngest of five. So food was always a big thing anyway. But you know what? It might be as simple as either a boiled egg egg and soldiers on a Sunday or something like ready brick. I've moved on to porridge, making my own now, but I still, you know, there's something about ready (laughs) brick. Yeah, just occasionally. Occasionally. The ready brick is. Um, Or flapjacks. 
There's Ooh. definitely an oat theme going on here. Yeah, yeah. those are great options. Or shepherd's pie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can never choose one, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Those are all, so those are all lovely home comforts. Yeah, sort of home. And was your mum a good cook? She was. I mean, she sort of had to <laughs> bake for like a family of seven, but she much prefers gardening. Okay. So I think she quite likes it now that I'll, if I come round, I'll sort of be like, don't worry, mum. You take over. I'll look after Christmas is on yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so right, back to the goss. How far in advance does it get filmed? And winning is obviously an enormous <laughs> deal. How hard was it to keep that a secret? It was tough. Yeah, I always say, if all the baking fails, MI5 beckons. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because it shows I can keep the secret. Oh my goodness, I'd, I'd just be the worst. I, don't, I think it's sort of... You obviously have to sign confidentiality forms, but it, so it's filmed. We started filming in the April and then obviously it was 10 weeks to get up to the final. Yeah. So the final was in the June and then the first episode gets broadcast at the end of August. But the final, I know, the final, as you guys see it, is in October. So it's four months between me winning and everyone else knowing I've won. Oh my goodness. And the two months between it finishing and it starting to be broadcast, that is just a real head head spin. So strange. Because I remember going back to work the Monday after I'd won, sitting there, answering emails like the vending machine's not working, the you know, the, <laughs> the children's garments are coming in for the selection meeting next week. And just not quite being able to focus or yeah, concentrate. Like, Hello, I'm a GBO winner. <laughs> no one cared. No one cared at that point. And then when the first episode went out, that's suddenly when your name and your face is released to like the media. And then I was walking around town, everyone's like, oh, secret squirrel woman. So, so you, you know who wins and you know when you go out and you're like, yeah, secret, secret that's what I got known as. So I like, and I literally did have to keep the secret. So that cake was more iconic and sort yeah, of symbolic in more hidden meaning. Away. And once you won and the show aired and the secret was out, how did life change? Was it a crazy whirlwind? <laughs> it was a complete whirlwind. You were like strapped in. It was just, it was manic. I remember the 48 hours following me winning. I was literally being sort of like driven around from radio station to show. I remember the morning like chatting to like Nick Grimshaw and Chris Evans. And then later on, I was on the one show, sat next to Joan Collins and just thinking, oh, this my doesn't quite really, I can't even like figure this out. No. But you don't really get a minute to stop, which is probably a good thing. And do they prepare you? Does oh, really? No, no there's no I guess it's hard to prepare for that kind of thing. Yeah, so. I, 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 there is no book. There's no, no manual. So, yeah. And who did you watch the final with? And what was that like actually watching Yeah, it? so I watched it because I had to be in London just for all the press and media stuff. So... I stayed at my cousin's flat in Angel, where I had been living anyway before going to Jules. And we just had friends and family, loads of emergency chairs around. Um, I remember because obviously that's when it was suddenly people, the final. And I remember walking back from supermarket with like provisions and stuff and people already sort of clocking your face a little bit oh my goodness. and I remember we had loads of like pretzels in because that was the technical bake that that evening for the bake-off. But I stood throughout, even though we had loads of emergency chairs, because you didn't get to see how every episode was going to be edited. Yeah. So each week I used to find it really quite traumatic. And there was even a bit of me going, maybe they shot several endings. Maybe it's like <laughs> EastEnders and I haven't actually won. <laughs> oh, like, um, <laughs> can I, you imagine? <laughs> I, I remember the producers when I was chatting to them to the, in the week running up to it, because they were really good just saying, you know, and they were like, Fran, your face is just a picture. And I was like, I don't, I remember every emotion just loops sort of 
leaving my body because it was just such an emotional day. And I think if Ruby hadn't been standing there, I would have full on fainted when they oh said my, my name. Goodness. I literally looked as white as flour. And then they thrust the trophy and the flowers into my hands. I think I would have I would have dropped them. So oh, it's yeah. just amazing. Yeah. Oh. Moving on to your second Desert Island dish of the day. What is the first dish that you learned to cook? It was probably flapjacks. Was it? Yeah, probably flapjacks. I remember Sunday afternoons just going into the kitchen and it was almost like an extension of the living room. Like I never felt intimidated in there. So if I just wanted to bake, I could. And because of having loads of brothers and sisters, it was like, well, nothing's going to go to waste. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just such a great staple bake. Yeah. You know, one pan, bit of syrup, bit of butter. I now like to grate like orange or lemon zest in, which helps sort of cut through the sweetness a bit. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. Uh, but I actually find flapjacks quite hard to cook because when they come out, they're still so squidgy. It's a really hard you know, kind of thing. Oh, is it going to solidify? And I've definitely been ones that have been like hard as rock when I've got it wrong. I know, but then they're quite good as granola. That's Yeah, that's true. And raw flapjack... So, to and be honest, before you put it in, doesn't the oven, even reach the oh tin. No, I know it's so good, <laughs> it's so, isn't it? So good. No, it's so good, like a delicious. And my mum was really known for it. like one of my brother's friends used to call our house flapjack heaven. Oh, oh. But we always joke at home now, like we don't know what's gone. Something's something's gone awry with the flapjacks because they're not as we remember them. Oh no! And I've been really like, mum, have you changed the recipe? Are they in there for long? And she was like, oh, I don't know, Fran. Just wanted to go out in the garden. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, no, mum, we need to work out. <laughs> What's happened to the flapjack recipe? Um, We're going to lose our title. Exactly. But no, flapjacks are always good. Flapjack, that's a very good choice. <laughs> so everybody loves Bake Off so much. But I do think it was the year that you were on it that people really loved it. And it sort of took off and became this proper phenomenon. Did you anticipate that? Not really, no. I mean, it's funny because we were the last year on BBC Two before it went over to one, but just because of the popularity of it. I remember they said that the final was the most viewed show, show on two, like overtaking Top Gear. It was like cake versus cars. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I remember one of my friends saying to me, she was like, Fran, I really don't think it's that big. I don't think you'll be recognised or anything. And then she goes now, like, oh, my Lord. Like, you're on the cover of the Radio Times. You're then on the cover of the Times the day after you won. It literally was like a media. It just kept on ramping up every week, every week. And I think because we were an all-female final and there was so much controversy around it, it was, yeah, it was it was mad. Yeah. And the actual practicalities of the filming, is it really filmed over the course of a weekend? Yes, indeed. Okay. It is. And um, everyone, I think that's why everyone says, why do you wear the same clothes? Yeah. <laughs> because everyone knows it's like two days. We thankfully got to change our aprons because they, okay. they look like a Jackson Pollock painting. But know. why do they make you wear the same clothes? Well, you're not meant to say, but it's oh, so see. they oh, can sorry. do an edit. No, don't worry. Oh, okay. I'm out, I think I'm out of the one okay, year yeah, I think contractual <laughs> thing. You're not meant say to say a word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, it is, there's no cheating on time. I wish we did have more time. Yeah. That's the thing. I have never known pressure or stress levels like it. No. A time and fridge space were the enemy. And yeah, when sometimes like Mel and Sue would be like, two hours to go when we only had 20 minutes, just so they had lots of different takes so they could use the air. Okay. So you were constantly like 
you felt like you were in a TARDIS. You're like, how long have we got? I mean, yeah. How long have we got? That's and a bit like, disconcerting. Yeah, 10 minutes it? since you last asked, Francis. <laughs> and it was really weird just baking in a tent. Yeah, really Because weird. we were at the mercy of the elements. Like, I remember like watching the weather that morning. Like we'd start filming at seven. So we'd have like a wake up call at five. Ooh. And watching like BBC weather and they'd be like, yeah, highs of 27. And we're like, we're meant to be making pastry. Oh, yeah. So, and then making meringue when it was like pouring down with rain. I actually remember that one. The rain was so heavy. It was just literally biblical yeah um and the floor was like a bouncy castle i remember when we were doing egg custard tarts like everyone was trying to put their egg custard tarts in the oven and the custard mixture it was like jurassic park and oh. everyone was like Can everyone? <laughs> the cameramen are just running around because there's so many people in that tent yeah so, so many, many people, people. I want to know know everything. Um, But moving on to the third Desert Island dish of the day, what is the best dish you've ever eaten? Well, again, you see, I'm never going to come up with just one option. Um, Right. I fell in love with sushi when I went over to Vancouver because my sister lives there and I spent a year living and working there. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. It's on every street corner. And there was this amazing place called the Sushi Eatery, which is a bit sort of like sushi with a definite twist okay and I remember my sister was like we can't go there first Fran because otherwise you are just gonna think that sushi is always called like there's sushi rolls called the fat Elvis and whatever else um so very uh, Japanese very Japanese (laughs) and then also over in Vancouver cinnamon buns which are my favorite bake hands down and there was amazing Jewish bakery over there called Solly's and they did the most incredible cinnamon buns so whenever I go over there now I'm like within 24 hours of landing I'm like we need to go to Solly's. Cinnamon um, buns. So cinnamon buns, sushi, and then cake, cakes, otolenghi's, apple and olive oil cake. Oh, Yeah, it's from his first book. And I remember my cousin making it and just like, and it has like this incredible maple frosting. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a few, but I think memories of food are also tied in with where you were and just experiences Definitely. as well. But so, no, that's really nice that you focused yeah. in on Vancouver. Yeah. Um, how aware are you that you're on TV? Is that something that you get used to really quickly? No, and I think because, I mean, we're always very glad it wasn't going out live. So we could, it wasn't really in our psyche how big it was going to get at the time. I mean, you're definitely aware of the amount of cameras and you're being interviewed about eight times a day. And so if things go wrong, it's not like you can forget about it. (laughs) You're being asked about it. (laughs) Talk us through that, Francis. Talk us through that emotional, like, biscuit tower collapse. (laughs) And you have to be quite good, which I I didn't really master until about the semi-finals. Even then it was a bit of a challenge when the cameraman or producer asks you a question, but you can't just give the answer. You have to then put the question back in your answer. So say if they say, you're really stressed right now, you can't just go, yes. You've got to go, yes, I'm I'm really feeling quite stressed right now. That's interesting. But like I said, you didn't really get to see how the show was being edited. And it was because there's so much drama and commotion going on in the tent. It was actually quite interesting watching it back because you're like, oh, I didn't know that's what was going on when Howard was at his workbench yeah. doing that. So even things like Custard Gate, which oh, happened that, in our that year. Pass you by? That passed me by. <laughs> completely passed me by. I was at the front of the tent. That was all <laughs> happening behind. Yeah, you wanted to be at the bench at the back. Because that way, particularly for a technical oh challenge... Oh, my God, definitely. Being at the front is because, such a disadvantage. Yeah, you could get to see what everyone was doing and you weren't meant to be looking behind your shoulder. So it was literally like being in an exam room, but you had a bit more of that. Or they putting it in the oven now. I always wondered that because, yeah, there is a lot of looking over the shoulder. A lot of looking <laughs> over the shoulder and they move your benches around so you're never in the same space. So you also have a different coloured KitchenAid as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
the feeling when you're waiting for the judges to go around and taste everyone's food. Ugh. How stressful was that? And how long are you actually waiting? Because I can imagine it felt for like forever. Ever. <laughs> it's known as the Royal Tour. Well, the Royal Tour is when Mary and Paul come in and go around to your workbenches and go, so what are you making this week? But the actual judging. So we probably come out of the tent and then there is something known as the beauty shot mm. where they take your bake, put it at the end of the bench. They then call you in individually and you're to sit there with your apron and you're meant to stare lovingly at the bake. Oh, yes. And the camera pans back and forth on this very sort of, you know, technical device. That takes half an hour. So if you've created a bake that hasn't necessarily turned out that great, it is so traumatic looking at it for half an hour. And also, if it's really hot and say you've done spun sugar, that spun sugar is just, it's just collapsing oh my God, yeah. by the minute. So Mary and Paul don't actually get to taste it for about two hours. And then you've got to be in for that. So it is laborious. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting because, yeah, all of those things that you wouldn't necessarily think yeah. of watching no. it. You're just well, like, oh, that's a nice shot of Frances staring at her case. Yeah, looking dead. <laughs> yeah. Looking dead. And everyone's like, did you get hair and makeup done? I'm like, no, 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 no. Mary oh, you Paul, don't. no, we don't. I remember yeah. going in at the beginning of the day, at least trying to look a little bit. But by the end of the challenge, I mean, having gone through that, some of the challenges are like five, six hours long. You're not looking at your best. No, you always look very Tempted fresh. to put a bit of freeze-dried raspberry yeah. powder on just to pick up, pick up the colour. So just between us, <laughs> what were the judges like in real life? They were, they were lovely. You didn't really have that much contact with them during the filming of the show. They were meant to definitely be biased. Mel and Sue you saw a lot more of and yeah. were just the most amazing pair. Really kept your spirits up. Yeah, Paul and Mary used to sort of come around. I remember the first week, though, because that was really a baptism of fire, thinking, what the hell have I done? This is so alien from my kitchen at home. And my workbench was just like an absolute mess. I was behind time. And I remember Mary coming up to my workbench and I was like... I'm so sorry, Mary. I feel I've let myself down. I've let you down. She was like, don't you worry, Francis. You can do this. And I remember thinking, Mary, Mary thinks I can do this. Come on, Fran. Yeah. Pull it back, pull it back. But yeah, they were never able to give any advice. It's been much nicer now, say, meeting them at like food events or the good food shows and being able to chat far more because yeah, they're not like at your friends. That point. Yeah. And Paul, Paul's always like, you're too tall, Francis. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm six foot and like, he, he's not over six foot. And I wasn't allowed to wear heels on the show, whereas I can because now. Because of Paul. Not because <laughs> of Paul. <laughs> I think just because of the fact that you're literally on your feet running around a tent. Francis, moving on to the most important question of the day. What is your favourite sandwich? <laughs> Oh, dear. It's, it's depends if I'm making it like it's, you know, when you can go into a food place and you're like, well, I thought I wanted that, but I've seen that now. Like the whole food yeah. envy. Yeah. The um, struggle is the real. The struggle is really real. Um, right now, I'm even thinking maybe a Reuben, but then the other side of me is thinking like a sort of hummus with loads of crunchy veg, sun-dried tomatoes. Mm. Is that in a baguette? <sighs> no, I reckon it's in. A really good sort of granary, granary roll or wrap. Yes. Stuffed or even a good pita bread. That sounds like uh, a very good option. Yeah. I think will allow you Or that. you'd yeah. want, some, I don't know, a really good like a sandwich thick- platter. Yeah, okay. sandwich cake. You know, so you can have to, oh dear. <laughs> a sandwich indecision. Platter, a girl Food indecision. After my own heart. <laughs> so, did you have any disasters on the show? Did oh, anything God, yeah. not go to plan? A lot. 
didn't go to plan. The one I think everyone remembers is obviously the biscuit tower collapse. So I think it was karma happening because (laughs) that wasn't the bake I was intending to do. I was meant to do a gingerbread house of cards, which was going to feature a queen of tarts with Mary Berry, Paul Hollywood with like a bread knife and the jokers were going to be Melon Sue. (laughs) But... I don't know if anyone remembers, but I slightly got into hot water for whole sign over substance, which I called SOS. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, right. Paul's, Paul gave oh, yeah, that time. became my catchphrase. So I was like, well, the gingerbread house of cards was just going to feature one type of biscuit, which was going to be gingerbread. And so I can't do that now. They're going to want something else different. So I was like, right, why don't I tap into my textile background? I'll do a whole like edible tower of biscuit buttons bit like a habit it was meant to be like look like a haberdashery box that had dropped and fallen over yeah. well that's sort of what I created yeah, yeah. No, it is <laughs> but um it was just a crazy week and I remember I'd run out of space on my workbench and I remember actually taking over Kate Corner and I remember Sue was like Fran you've taken over Mary Berry's table I was like I know Sue but I've got nowhere else to work <laughs> and it was a really hot day running out of time and the whole thing that was meant to secure it was like this sort of sugar sugar knitting needle and I'd got a piece of doweling stuck in initially and I remember Sue was like Fran you're gonna have to take that out because it all has to be edible so a minute before the end she was like you're gonna have to replace it with the with the sugar knitting needle and I remember taking out the doweling putting in the sugar knitting needle and I could I could feel and sense that it had broken and then I remember Mel was like that's it Baker step away from your creations and I stepped away and the whole thing just went down and literally the whole tent went quiet it was like some sort of out of body experience did your heart my heart just sank and I remember going and then you had to sit with it for half an hour yeah I remember remember walking out of that tent and then they were like Fran can you come in and do your beauty shot I was like beauty shot (laughs) beauty shot I need like some sort of shot of like sugar or sort of to get over the shock uh yeah that wasn't my my best moment but you bounced back Fran I did bounce back you did you did and that seems a good moment to ask you about your fifth desert island dish of the day that's the dish that you eat the most often do you know it might be something really I I say plain and boring but I don't think porridge does have to be plain and boring but I pimp my porridge to the max talk us through it literally uh, well, it depends on all the different milks that you can use. Like I love using like coconut or whatever else. And then I top it to the max because I love things with texture and bite. So it initially will have cinnamon on. I think I could do the cinnamon challenge and get through it because I sort do of... Do you have... actually think... But I read the other day that you actually die if you have more than <laughs> two I... teaspoons of cinnamon. Which I think I should be dead then. I should be dead. (laughs) Because you you like, do you want porridge with your cinnamon there, Fran? Literally, I like get, I should have shares in the stuff. Oh, Fran, I'll happily video you doing the cinnamon challenge. (laughs) Um, So, and I put like banana. So although it's really boring, that's what I eat the most of. No, it's not boring at all. Are you one of those people that believes in porridge for lunch or supper? Oh, we can have it. No, anytime, anytime. Yeah, Definitely. So let's talk about what you're up to now. I'm always seeing the most incredible creations on your Instagram and it all just looks like business is booming. But what are you up to specifically and how's it all going? Well, I am working on a second book at the moment. So yeah, it was sort of, it's interesting seeing the recipes that have done well in the first one. And the most popular one was like my bourbon brick brownies, which was sort of taking a brownie, but then like adding in a bourbon biscuit Yum. because who doesn't love a bourbon? Yeah. So it's almost playing on that idea of taking much loved 
biscuits and pairing them with much love bakes and creating things that don't necessarily have to take loads of time. Like I think a lot of people think, oh, Franz bakes are sort of showstoppers that take hours. And I'm like, no, 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 it honestly doesn't have to be like that. Like yeah. When I did my um, Bonoffi Jenga shortbread, it's almost like saying, well, why does shortbread just have to be kept on a plate? Why don't we make it into a tower? Yeah. So it's sort of taking the idea of playing with your food, really. Um, but it's great doing stuff like I've just done some stuff with the design museum and then I'd done some things with the Tate for the Hockney exhibition in the summer and I'm going to be doing some more stuff with them later on in the year with their new impressionist um, exhibition so I think because my design background it sort of feeds into the the food world yeah I'm working with other brands, lots, lots of things coming up. And Alex Munro, because I'm wearing oh, yes, I the much that. loved bee necklace. And so I'm doing, because it's the brand's 30th anniversary this year. So I'm going to be doing a brunch with Alex as well next month. How so, amazing. So, yeah. so many exciting things going on. I've seen that you've been busy breaking world records. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered for you, what if, if you had to pick one thing, what's the most exciting thing that's happened? Yeah, the the giant Jaffa cake that was that was pretty. That was amazing. Pretty impressive, and I love. It's been great as well because I love music, so I've sort of done bakes for some of my favourite artists and bands. So I remember doing the um, giant club biscuit for Bombay Bicycle Club, <gasps> and I did like a sweet Bombay mix that that recipe featured in my first book. And it's just lovely hearing the band's reaction going, we love Bombay Mix, but we've never had sweet Bombay Mix. Oh my goodness, that's so cool. So it's been, yeah, it's great sort of doing stuff like that. I mean... Like things that you would just never have even thought of. I've never thought I'd make the shard out of gingerbread. No, no. <laughs> no I can't believe... That was believe, mad. Making, I don't believe you did imagine that you'd do that growing up. No. <laughs> making like Barbara Hepworth-inspired sculptures out of shortbread. Getting to meet heroes like Quentin Blake. You so know. cool. So, yeah, it's been a real sort of like smorgasbord of different things that, yeah, have happened along the way. Mad. So great. Francis, what is your go-to dinner party dish? That's your sixth desert island dish of the day. Oh, so is that something like I take along? Or that you would make if you were entertaining people? Sweet, sweet or so. You see, I, I might say the bourbon brick brownies. Ooh, yes. Just because, one, they're very good to travel with. So yep. if you were going, you know, particularly on like London Tube. Also, I imagine you'd be a very popular guest if you brought well, those they're, along. They, they're just good because you can either leave them as they are or you can make a whole edible brick wall with them and you can get everyone a bit interactive. So at the end yes. of the meal, lay out a bowl of what looks like chocolate ganache, which is, but then it can become cement and you can make a whole edible wall or you oh can my just God, stack I love them up, that. keep them warm, have ice cream on the side. I even did them once and used, uh, there's um, white chocolate edible birthday candles in the book. Yeah. So simple, but they're good then if it's someone's celebratory. So you can have white chocolate candles on a whole stack of brownies. Wait, so how do you make an edible candle? So simple. Wow. So mm. a really quick way, if you want to melt chocolate. So if you get one of those disposable piping bags. Yeah. Break up some white chocolate, although I have to say Milky Bar chocolate buttons, they're great chocolates oh, to work with. Good they just tip. They don't split, whatever. So fill the piping bag with them. Don't obviously cut the end. Boil the kettle, fill up like a pint glass or a vase with hot water. Plunge the disposable piping bag with the white chocolate in. So the chocolate melts inside the bag. Once all the chocolate is melted, pull it out. 
then cut the end and then you can just get disposable drinking straws. I find the Waitrose one's the best. The Waitrose Cafe. Oh, you are Just take a few in your bag. Cut them down to like sort of birthday candle size and then just plunge them with the white chocolate and because you've cut the end, they go in easy. And then if you put a little bit of desiccated coconut in the end, that acts as the wick. Let them go hard in the fridge. Then you just push them out the straw. Now, the desiccated coconut wick doesn't burn for long, but it does burn. It does burn. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Whoever I know who has a birthday coming soon, they... They're a great little gift. They're a great little gift. That's so cool. You are so creative, and I've heard you say that creativity is at the heart of everything you do. But how do you come up with these incredible ideas? Do they just sort of pop into your head in the middle of the night honestly that is the bit i love most the ideas and the concepts and yeah they can come at 24 7 i sort of have a strange habit of seeing everything as food so like even just like staring out at a brick wall i'll just see similarities in texture between like a red brick and like maybe a gingerbread biscuit obviously soil for me, anyway, just looks like chocolate cake. Uh, <laughs> Was that a problem when you were a child? Or <laughs> Stop eating the sand. She thinks it's chocolate biscuit crumbs. Um, so ideas, and I think although all the designs I do are edible, the inspiration comes from outside of the kitchen. So whether it be architecture or music or a film or an exhibition. And also I am really guilty of playing with words and puns. So that will also naturally help me come up with a concept. So yeah, I, I just, I just love it. I'd almost, I always say I'd, I'd almost like to be a creative culinary conductor. Everyone's like, what the hell is that? I feel like that's what you are. Mission accomplished. <laughs> a huge tick. Because sometimes the, the ideas come so quickly and I can't necessarily create them that quick. And it would always be to work with a team where I'd be like, right, I need five metres of phyllo pastry. I need two litres of chocolate ganache. Stat. Stat. <laughs> I remember Paul saying that. You come into your own in the last five minutes when everything's done and it's like, blah, 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 blah. you can then just put it all together. It's like the, the conducting bit. That's so, like, all like a surgeon. So I'm going to maybe change that on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You've made your own title and I you love You want me that. for MI5 or creative culinary <laughs> conducting. <laughs> I'll bring a brownie. So, Francis, I can't believe it, but we're on to the seventh and final <sighs> desert island dish. And that is the last dish you would eat before being cast off to the desert island. Ah, again, I've got a problem on my hands. One thing says as simple as a coffee and a cinnamon bun. Um, I'm now, there. there are no rules to this podcast, but Francis, no. Okay. I mean, you can have that as a starter. A starter or, come or on, to end. This or is your last meal. An all-you-can-eat buffet. Yes, now but we're the, talking. But the best sort, like, you know, somewhere like Ethos or Ottolenghi. Just go in there. Oh, my goodness, yes, Ottolenghi. Fill your plates <laughs> with just Ottolenghi. With no weight limit. With no weight, yeah, no weight <laughs> limit on the Ethos thing, definitely. And I even like it in... Have you ever been to Ottolenghi's for breakfast? No, I they haven't. They put a toaster on your table. I mean, part of me is like, you're slightly doing the waiters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're just toasting your own bread, aren't you? <laughs> um, but I just love the fact of, and they have so many different like pimped up Nutellas, you know, like chocolate spreads with whole hazelnuts in. So you just toast away, although you don't want to be on a table where you're having to share your toaster. Oh, no. That can get awkward if there's a couple and you have to keep going, excuse me. 
Oh, yeah. Could you just press my sourdough down? Yeah. <laughs> that is an instance not of good. sharing, not being caring. But just being able to pile your plate high with all those incredible salads and dishes and, yeah, and, and to be able to move from different, like it is a melting pot in regards to the different types of food we've got access to now. So, and yeah, I, I'm I'm always one for wanting to share food. So if you go out for a meal, I'm like, can we all get a different dish? But then you have to be with someone who's happy to do that. You don't want to yeah. be with a um, a Joey. I'm very much into that unless I've ordered better than everyone else. True. In which case I'm like, yeah, oh, get off my goyosa. Yeah, maybe we should just have what we all <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Food envy. <laughs> so, Frances, you're allowed to take one luxury item to the desert island. It can be anything. What are you going to choose? It might even be the simple thing that's almost become a bit of my logo on my website. It's what's called the Spencil. So it's like a spoon and a pencil. So one end is the pencil so I could draw and illustrate all my ideas and the other end is a spoon. So I could, if I managed to forage and find anything, I could create something. But that's yes. not that luxury, is it? Well, that's okay. Luxury comes in many different forms. Or, or just maybe something to listen to music, just so I can escape in that way. Yeah, yeah. an amazing playlist. Well, I'm going to be endless. very generous and allow you both of those. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, No Francis. worries. And there we are. How lovely is Frances? I'm so happy for her that such good and exciting things seem to be happening as she just couldn't be nicer. And I feel she just really deserves it. I want to eat those brownies immediately. And she's also inspired me to cook up some flapjacks this weekend. I might even, if I'm feeling brave, give those edible white chocolate candles a go. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes and I will see you next time. Bye.